Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. When we study the Dharma, we deal with a conceptual framework and a technical vocabulary. That is, certain words and phrases represent foundational Dharmic concepts that arise repeatedly in the Dharma. For instance, in many discourses of the Buddha, and are used with a rather specific meaning. Examples are suffering, craving, karma, ignorance, jhana, skillful, unskillful, kindness, equanimity, greed, hatred, delusion, mindfulness, diligence, refuge, precepts, name and form, aggregates, sense spheres, Buddha, Sangha, and so on. It's important for us to learn these Dharmic concepts and their exact meaning to gain a good grasp of the Dharma. Our understanding of the Dharma is no better than our understanding of this technical vocabulary, so we have to give careful attention to these terms. English-speaking teachers and students use, for the most part, English words for this technical vocabulary, although sometimes we use original words from Pali, Sanskrit, and so on, like Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and Jhana. Pali is the language with the richest trove of early teachings, and that is largely our point of reference in these podcasts. So by and large, the technical vocabulary I discuss here is translated from Pali into English. Some of these terms are explicitly defined in these texts. Some can be pinned down by the consistent way they are used in many contexts. However, it's important that we know what we are looking at when we use an English technical term. These often have tenuous relationships to original Dharmic concepts that we are trying to understand. First, someone, we presume the Buddha in most cases, chose a Pali word, let's say dukkha, to represent a Dharmic concept. The Pali word was probably not a perfect match but takes on a specialized technical meaning. Then the word has been translated into English, let's say, as suffering. This will rarely be a perfect match to the Pali word and will carry various modern cultural connotations to confuse the student even more as he tries to pinpoint the Dharmic concept it is technically supposed to stand for. In Mahayana texts, we generally have additional layers of complication. Typically, a Dharmic concept will have been expressed first in an Indic language, then later translated into Chinese or Tibetan, sometimes with some ancient Central Asian language as an intermediary 
then finally into English. Typically, the Indic version has been lost, precluding more direct translation. I want to talk for the next couple of weeks about this technical vocabulary and, in particular, the reliability of its English translations and the pitfalls in accurately interpreting the technical vocabulary in English. Part of this will involve understanding what the heck is going on in the translator's mind. I'll discuss this in terms of a series of challenges each student of Buddhism must deal with in understanding the technical vocabulary with reference to the Pali literature. Challenge number one. A given technical term in Pali may be translated in multiple ways in English. For instance, the Pali term dukkha is very important and is central to the Four Noble Truths. The aim of Buddhist practice is to end dukkha. Its most common translation into English is suffering, but we also find dissatisfaction, pain, stress, and many others. If we learn from multiple teachers, confusion is close at hand. For instance, one teacher might state, The first noble truth is the truth of dissatisfaction. And another, The first noble truth is the truth of stress. It sounds like they're saying contradictory things. Stress is not the same as dissatisfaction in English. Which teacher is right? The answer is that they're both talking about the same thing, the concept represented by Pali dukkha. No English word corresponds perfectly to dukkha. So each translator comes up with a different match. This is certainly the main source of multiple translations for a single Pali term. Most teachers will state somewhere clearly what Pali term they are referring to if there is any chance of confusion. For instance, stress, and by stress I mean dukkha, or diligence, and by diligence I mean appamada. However, not all teachers consistently do this in all contexts. After a while, the reader or listener might get used to the range of English translations or the peculiarities of particular teachers. Here is an interesting example, the Pali compound word satipatthana. I just spent my last 22 podcasts on the topic of rethinking satipatthana. The word refers to the Buddha's hugely important technique of gaining insight through meditation, which is a prerequisite to awakening. The most common translation is foundations of mindfulness or also establishment of mindfulness. A particular teacher, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, consistently calls it quite idiosyncratically frames of reference. How confusing is that? Another example is the very important word asawa. Get rid of the asawas and you are awakened. It's variously translated as taint, inflow, outflow, secretion, intoxicant, and 
fermentation. Although it's used as a technical term in Pali, referring to one of the three or sometimes four levels of entanglement, it is a metaphoric use of a general Pali word that ranges over taint, inflow, outflow, secretion, intoxicant, and fermentation. No English word has that particular range of meanings, so we have to pick one, and we apparently don't know on which of these meanings the metaphor was originally built. So all of them end up being used by one translator or another. So challenge number one is that a given technical term in Pali may be translated in multiple ways in English. Tip number one is that we always try to find out and keep track of the corresponding Pali term for any technical term you see in English. This is a bit of work because it entails learning some Pali words, but for a serious student, it is worth it to gradually expand your vocabulary. You don't have to learn the whole language, just the common Pali technical vocabulary. Challenge number two. Much of the English technical vocabulary has been standardized with non-optimal translations. So suffering is more or less standard for dukkha, greed, hatred, and delusion for loba dosa moha, concentration for samadhi, mindfulness for sati, and so on. A good portion of these standard terms were introduced in the 19th century by the pioneer translators of Pali texts. Almost all of these have modern breakaway variants, generally because teachers find that the translations miss the mark. It's not surprising that they would miss the mark since these early translators were not Buddhist practitioners and the scholarship that has helped produce modern understandings of these texts did not yet exist. Nonetheless, the achievements of these early translators were quite remarkable. The great advantage of a standardized terminology is that people generally know what is meant. Students don't have to worry about what the corresponding polyterm is, and teachers don't have to take care to provide it. It suffices to say concentration, because lots of teachers use that word, and therefore it can be connected with a wealth of things we've already learned about concentration. Sometimes there will be two competing terms, like awakening and enlightenment, both of which are bodhi in Pali, but we generally know they are synonymous. Let's look at hatred as a standard translation that misses the mark. Hatred is very strong in English. We usually don't use it when we find something moderately disagreeable or when we feel guilty about something. Actually, aversion would be a much better translation since it can be used to describe a small discomfort or it can be used to describe uncontrollable rage. 
polydosa applies when we try to push something away, when we want to get rid of something. Hatred is consistently a strong emotion, but it is the standard translation of dosa. Similarly, greed is very strong. Neediness would be a better translation. It applies when we try to pull something towards ourselves or when we want something. Greed is largely reserved for business tycoons who would sell their own mother to make a buck, or for people who share a jar of mixed nuts but eat all of the cashews. Another standard translation is concentration for samadhi. Now, in this case, we can trace historically why this is a poor translation. The word samadhi is a derived word from the prefix sam and the root adi, from adiati, put down. So it means putting or collecting together. In other words, samadhi means literally collectedness or composure. What am I bringing together? Basically, an array of mental factors into a controlled order, including attentiveness, rapture and serenity, but also seclusion from distractions. Many argue, including me, but I'm not going to argue it here, that samadhi in the early discourses generally involves wide-open awareness, which is consistent with collectedness and composure. But in the Visuddhimagga Buddhaghosa's great meditation manual from the 5th century A.D., Samadhi has very narrow focus of attention, like observing the breath in the nostrils. The Visuddhimagga prevailed in the Theravada tradition. Now, English concentration tends to imply a very narrow focus of attention, which probably recommended it as the standard term for Samadhi. The the English word Concentration does not require narrow focus, since one can concentrate on filing our taxes with documents spread all over the table. There it means something like keeping the kids at bay or not turning on the TV. But concentration suggests a narrowing, as in concentrated milk or the concentrating of sunlight through a magnifying glass. My own preference is composure, but I know of only one author, Malaysian meditation teacher, Venerable Kumara, who uses composure. Many would disagree about the broader focus of samadhi, by the way, but my point here is to illustrate what is at issue in choosing one translation over another. Each teacher teaches the Dharma as he understands it, and teachers do not always understand it the same. We've seen that sticking with the standard vocabulary has the advantage of consistency. As we listen to or read teachings by various teachers in English, even when the teachers disagree about what Dharmic concept is intended by the term, we just have to remember that the standard terms are technical, that is, They are likely to be used with specialized meanings that do not reflect their everyday usage. We're all used to technical meanings, 
like mouse as a thing whose tail is stuck into our computer, or a bug in our computer application, or bailing out in finance. Suffering and concentration have technical meanings when the domain is Buddha Dharma. We just need to put their general everyday meanings aside. What are the advantages of deviating from standard terminology? One advantage is that today's deviation might become tomorrow's standard. Some standard terms are outmoded and might well be revised going forward. The problem is getting everyone to agree on a new standard, which is like getting everyone to agree on a revision of the standards for spelling English words. Nonetheless, a prominent translator like Bhikkhu Bodhi is in a position to introduce a new standard if he feels it's appropriate. Although his translations tend to follow old standards, a deviation, in his cases, is used of phenomenon for dhamma with small d instead of the more common mind object. I heartily endorse phenomenon myself. Another advantage of deviating from standard terminology is found in the case in which students are genuinely and consistently confused by the English term. Composure rather than concentration gives more ready access to the dharmic concept behind samadhi than concentration and can make a difference in one's meditation practice as a result. I find it apt to use the standard terms in some contexts and a term that better hits the mark in other contexts. For instance, if I'm talking or writing one-off about a topic that touches on samadhi only peripherally, I will call it concentration. Otherwise, I would have to make a tangential turn to make it clear to the reader that by composure I mean samadhi, and then would feel compelled to explain why I'm using composure instead of concentration. I just say concentration, and that's good enough. You'll notice this in a lot of my podcasts. However, if I'm talking or writing specifically about meditation or writing a long book, I'm more likely to use composure. It hits the mark and justifying it is not so tangential. To repeat, challenge two is that much of the English technical vocabulary has been standardized with non-optimal translations. Tip number two is that we disassociate any technical term in English from its everyday meaning and from any connotations it might carry. In other words, remember that it is a technical term. It doesn't have to have its normal everyday meaning. I'll stop here for now. Next week, I'll finish up our discussion of Buddhist terminology. I want to look more closely at the way different views about what the Dharma says influences a teacher's or a translator's choice of terminology. 
and how this can challenge the student.